Hello, friends. Welcome back to Crazy Money. Yes, it's been a few weeks. My post-holiday hiatus was extended due to a wicked case of the flu that lasted for almost two weeks and a personal project that has been eating up all of our time here in this house, about which I'm going to tell you everything you want to know in about a month. But uh, in the meantime, I'm very excited to share this encore episode with you. It's a conversation about race and money and the racial wealth gap with Coleman Hughes. Coleman is a rising voice in the public intellectual sphere in America, especially those people who are writing about discussing politics, society, race, and economics. He is a writer, podcaster, opinion columnist, and a self-described black man who doesn't think everything is about race. He's got a new book coming out today, which is why we're running this encore on this very day. The book is called The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America, in which he confronts some of the pervasive social narrative around race and economics today. The publisher describes the book saying that uh, Coleman describes how the departure from the colorblind ideal of the civil rights movement has ushered in a new era of fear, paranoia, and resentment marked by draconian interpersonal etiquette, failed corporate diversity and inclusion efforts, and poisonous race-based policies that hurt the very people they intend to help. And this, friends, is my belief as well. I believe that the people that these policies intend to help would actually benefit from a different kind of help. The Ollinger House's number one philanthropic goal has been to create economic opportunity by giving people the tools they need to succeed in the world. What is that? Job training and literacy. That's what we've been trying to do. You don't need to indoctrinate young, economically disadvantaged people with the philosophy that the whole world is against them. You need to give them the skills that they need to compete in the marketplace so that they can become independent economic autonomous economic entities that can then take care of themselves, raise their own families on a livable wage, and break the cycle of poverty from generation to generation. That's what I believe. That's what Coleman believes. And we talk about that. That isn't to say that those who are economically disadvantaged, and certainly black Americans are disproportionately economically disadvantaged for a variety of reasons that we go into in this conversation. We discuss that, the racial wealth gap and its origins, why government action, including reparations, is not a solution, whether 100% equality among all races is possible or even desirable, how progressive policies that supposedly help African Americans are actually holding them back, and finally, what issues we should focus on if we actually want to empower black economic autonomy. This is a very interesting conversation that goes beyond the headlines and asks, why are things the way they are? And you have to understand that if you want to solve the problems. This, my friends, is Coleman Hughes. Coleman, I've been reading you and listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, how do you answer the question, what do you do? Yeah, I guess I answer that by saying I'm a podcaster. I'm also a writer. I'm also a rapper. So I never know what order to answer that in. But for <laughs> this purpose, I'm, I'm a podcaster. I've had that is my main job now. I have a podcast called Conversations with Coleman because I'm very creative with titles. And yeah, I, I, I tackle all kinds of issues. It's, it's technically a philosophy 
podcast, but I tackle politics, culture war issues, science, all kinds of stuff. What makes you unique in your in this world that we live in today, politically speaking? So I think, you know, the way the way a lot of people see me, the way a lot of people answer that question is, you know, I'm a black person that doesn't think that everything is about racism. And I tend to be I'm not really a conservative or, or a Republican in the sense that I've I've never voted that way in the few times I've been old enough to vote, although I, I wouldn't rule it out by any means. But I tend to be very skeptical of the ideology that is growing in popularity on the cultural left, which says that the country is white supremacist. You have to fear for your life when you leave your house. If you're jogging while black, you know, every racial disparity is the result of racism. I tend to be very skeptical of that. And I tend to, you know, a lot of people tend to come to my podcast to hear a reasonable criticism of that whole species of race obsession and racism obsession. And I think that's what many people would describe as as my niche, although that wasn't the like that that had nothing to do with my initial interests really in life. Um, I was a philosophy major at Columbia and I was I was interested in, I guess, the intersection of philosophy and science. But when I got to Columbia, I was inundated with, for for the first time in my life, really, on all sides with this narrative that somehow at the most privileged and, and, and incredible space I had ever been in, Columbia University, I was a victim of racism on campus, which I knew to be a lie from firsthand experience. So I became very curious, why is it that suddenly in the most elite, beautiful, non-racist space I've ever been in, Everyone is suddenly talking about racism more than ever, more than my grandfather that lived through Jim Crow. So I became very curious about that puzzle. And that led me down a path to to write about that and sort of explain a puzzle I was trying to figure out to other people through writing. And that's how I started getting a following. Why do you think people felt like racism played such a huge role at Columbia? That's a that's a very complicated question. I think there's a there's many answers to it. But what was most important for me to recognize is that it had no bearing on reality and that the kinds of reasons I was looking for would be more of like the sociological or anthropological reasons that a researcher uh, might look for when trying to explain certain religious beliefs, right? Because when, you know, when people believe in God, when they believe in whichever God they believe in, and you ask why they believe it, well, they might give you some rational reasons. But at the end of the day, you know it's about faith. So you tend to look for more psychological explanations. What does God do for you? What does the idea of God do for you? Well, it binds me to my community. It makes me act morally when nobody's watching. There's all kinds of explanations, but they are not the kinds of explanations you look for when your belief is rational and grounded in reality. So we all have a, a certain confirmation bias that we seek out consciously or unconsciously that helps us to feel comfortable about the beliefs that we've chosen are accurate, that, that we find evidence in the world that affirms what we hold to be true. Yes, that's definitely a human universal, and I'm as much potentially guilty of that as anyone. I think one one interesting thing about the culture of a place like Columbia University, which would be mirrored on any top Ivy League campus or any elite school or many progressive high schools, many workplaces increasingly, is that no white person ever wants to be mistaken for a racist. That's the most important operating motive in people's psychology, which is totally understandable. 
at a place like Columbia or other schools like that, do you think that white people are are racist until proven non-racist? Well, I mean, there is something like that. They they certainly feel that they have to prove their anti-racist bona fides, you know, like like all all the time. And they're they're terrified of understandably, like I said, this is not this is me actually empathizing or sympathizing with them. They're terrified of being the next person whose reputation gets destroyed because they did or said something allegedly racist and they get destroyed in the court of public opinion without any kind of hearing. That happens often enough that people really fear it and it determines what they say in public, what they're willing to say in public, what they're willing to talk about, basically destroys any possibility of a truly honest conversation because it makes any conversation about race or racism more similar to, you know, like a a defendant strategizing his speech in in his own court case than it does to a kind of honest flowing conversation that you would have with a friend or with someone where you know there's a presumption that you're probably not evil to start with so you can get into nuance and you can say things that are controversial or unpopular, but true in your experience and and so forth. Yeah, lived experience is is relevant to this conversation. You hear it cited all the time in these kinds of conversations. So what was your background like? What What was life like for you as a kid? I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, in a very diverse and well off suburb of New York, beautiful place that is known for people moving to it because it's culturally progressive. It was known when I was a kid as a place where interracial couples would move because they knew there were many other interracial couples and it was an accepting environment. Their kids would not be ostracized for being half black, half white, biracial, as we used to call it. And it was also known as a place where gay couples would move because there were many gay couples there as well. That was, that's the kind of culture of the town. I'm not sure I knew a single Republican growing up except for my fifth grade teacher. <laughs> he was the only one. And he was known to everyone as a, as a Republican. What were your parents like? What did they expect of you? My dad pretty much just wanted me to be happy, pursue anything I liked to do and stay out of trouble. And my mom had very, had much more specific and, and high expectations. I mean, they, they both had high expectations for me, but my mom, she expected me to get straight A's. I think my mom's expectations of my grades and general behavior were very heavy on me growing up. She was kind of a tiger mom. And I really felt that a lot from her. Now we know a little bit about your background. We're here to talk about the racial wealth gap today. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly that is. I want to read a few statistics that I think I think the facts are not terribly arguable, but how we got here is something that's worth discussing in depth. First of all, the average white household earns 65% more than the average black household. The average white household's net worth is 10x that of the average black household. Other studies cited it six to one, although that might be either average versus median. We'll just say it's a big factor. Whites are three times more likely than blacks to receive inheritance. And then some anecdotal data from the student loan world. Average black balances of newly graduated students are 39,500, where the average white student has 29,900. And 20 years into repayment, the average black borrower still owes 95% of what they borrowed versus the average white who's almost paid their loans off. When you hear statistics like this that are that are so stark, 
Is it is it reasonable that many people, most perhaps, assume that this is all based on racism? No, it's not reasonable, actually. That's, um, I mean, it's a tempting explanation to resort to if you don't actually study the the wider landscape of racial and ethnic inequalities. But what I would say to, to start out this conversation is there is a racial wealth gap between every race and ethnicity that you could possibly imagine. So like, for example, the racial wealth gap between Hispanics and whites is pretty much just as big as the racial wealth gap between blacks and whites. But no one ever talks about it for some reason, which creates the false impression that it's strange for there to be gaps between groups, when in reality, not only are there there gaps between every two groups you could imagine, there are often large ones, and there are often large wealth gaps just between different sort of kinds of white people, if you will, kinds of black people, right? If you look at the income gaps between Russian white Americans and French white Americans, you you see very large gaps in income. Also, you know, Nigerian Americans as opposed to Haitian Americans, though they're the same color, will have very big gaps in terms of wealth and income. This is not to say historical racism is not one of the many factors that will cause such gaps. It is 100%. Even if you were to snap your fingers and magically erase historical racism, what you would still find is we live in a world where inequality of outcome is the norm for a hundred different reasons. Like quite literally, there are probably a hundred different independent causes of inequality, many of which are just totally innocent and actually most of which are totally innocent and, you know, we're not remediable to coin a word. For instance, the fact that the the average white person is a full, I think, I think the median white American is like two decades older than the median Hispanic American. Median white guy is like, you know, 45 and the median Hispanic in this country is like 25 years old. And the median black person is, is right in between like 33 or 35 last I checked. So when you talk about aggregate statistics, you're actually comparing apples to oranges, right? You're comparing at the median, a white guy that's had 45 years, you know, 25 adult years, let's say to amass wealth to a black person that's had 15 adult years to amass wealth. And we know people tend to accrue wealth as they get older. They also tend to commit less crime as they get older, you know. And uh, and then you're comparing that to a Hispanic that's had five or seven adult years to amass wealth. And you're saying, how come there are gaps between the three? And again, age is only one of many differences that are confounding variables to, to the analysis. And many of those differences can't even be measured by social scientists, much less held constant. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Coleman in just a minute. I want to let you know that I'll be performing comedy on the road very soon and perhaps likely, perhaps likely, perhaps near you is what I mean to say. February 22nd, I'll be co-headlining Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco with my friend and former mob lawyer from Chicago, Paul Farvar. Cobb's Comedy Club, February 22nd. Paul and I will also be co-headlining Zany's Nashville on February 28th. April 19th through 20th. Sounds like it's a long way away, but it's just two months and 13 days away. I will be at DC Comedy Loft in Washington, DC with Paul. Again, two nights, four shows. That'll be a fun one. May 3rd and 4th, I'm going to put my big boy pants on and headline by myself the Denver Comedy Lodge in where? Denver, Colorado, the Mile High City. That's a fun little club. I love it. I like that room. It's cool. It's groovy. Come out. They've got good openers too. 
May 3rd and 4th at Denver Comedy Lounge, and then May 5th at the Boulder Comedy Show in Boulder, Colorado, and May 17th at the Cary Theater in Cary, North Carolina, otherwise known as Suburban Raleigh. Show information is available on my website, paulollinger.com. Check them out. Thanks a lot. See you later. Okay, so there's it's a multivariable problem, but do we know to what extent things like slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, government-mandated or government policies that were very real and very racist contribute to the current situation, the current gap between black and white wealth? No, nobody knows. The answer is not zero, obviously, but nobody knows how much. And the people claiming to know are misled. There is no way that a human social scientist or a team of social scientists can actually run history, you know, you you somehow use the butterfly effect to show how things would have been different and then tell you exactly, you know, put you anywhere close to a number of what was the damage that slavery, Jim Crow and redlining cumulatively did. It's it's an exercise in pure fiction that gets called social science. Nobody knows. Anyone who claims to know is lying to you. But we agree the gap is real. We agree the gap is is widening or has been widening over the past few decades. What should be done about it? You know, it's a, it's an issue. Is there something that, that should be done about it? Can the government do anything to remedy whatever proportion of the current situation that has been caused by past government action? So first of all, we have no idea what portion of, of, of the current situation is caused by past government action as opposed to, you know, as opposed to, for instance, all the reasons why there's a 10 to 1 gap between Hispanics and, and whites. We have, we have no, no way of apportioning that. Secondly, I would say that there are two different ways of framing this problem. One is a problem of the distance between black wealth and white wealth. And a different way of framing this problem is that poverty is a problem that we should address on its own terms. Those are two different ways of looking at the issue. And I would I would push those who look at it the first way to actually look at it the second way. So like, for instance, and, and I don't just say this to be to be clever, you know, like if you're so concerned about wealth gaps in themselves, would it be better or worse if you just took white owned dollars and burned them until white people had had as little wealth as as black people did that would make the country equal in on this philosophy but it wouldn't make the country any better the the way that i prefer to frame the issue is that poverty is a problem and we have all the reason in the world to address poverty to target resources and programs at the poor regardless of why they're poor whether it's because of history or because of the present. And we don't need to focus on aggregate statistics that lump people based on these arbitrary categories like race, lump tens of millions of individuals, all of whom are totally different, and then measure progress by how much we make those numbers close to each other. I I think that has a, a pretty tenuous relationship to actually addressing poverty. There are many different programs that have been suggested as a way to remedy the racial wealth gap perhaps even to address poverty. And each of them has their own merits, pros, cons, etc. The first, perhaps most controversial, would be reparations. You testified at the House Subcommittee on Reparations. And I wonder if you'd give us some thoughts on what reparations would do to the country and who they would help and would they help for a sustainable period of time. So well, what do you mean by reparations? Because one, one thing I've learned is that everyone sometimes has wildly <laughs> different 
definitions. As I understand it, reparations would be some kind of cash transfer, some kind of monetary transfer to the descendants of slaves. Yeah, that is a definition that would make sense to me. Although it's worth saying at that Congress hearing I testified at, you know, like two or three of the eight uh, other people testifying, quote unquote, experts said, if you think reparations means cash to descendants of slavery, you're crazy, right? You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and then ta Coates said, actually, why not cash to the descendants of slaves? So, so like people at the, at the top level of, of this conversation have totally different pictures of what reparations would be. For some people, it's like a, a spiritual or symbolic acknowledgement. For other people, it's, it's hard cash to descendants of slaves. For others, it's still a third thing. But yeah, so let's take just the common sense definition that you gave. I mean, the, the first and the most obvious thing to say is that I'm a descendant of, of slaves, but those slaves lived over 150 years ago. Though there are precedents for paying reparations to living victims of atrocities such as the hol Holocaust uh, in Europe and the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, there, I, I've yet to find a single example of that people tout that I know of, of giving reparations to the six great grandson of, of an atrocity. That's just something governments don't tend to do. And it's, it's also something people don't tend to demand because I, I think we recognize that actually the link between someone being enslaved in, in 1860, like, you know, my, my own ancestors, the link between their suffering and me being damaged as a result is actually very shaky. The link even between truly between my grandfather and me, it's like, I mean, it's, it's the stuff of Hollywood to show how a single thing in, in, in the past can change the future in totally unpredictable ways. And so I think it's, like I said, it's sort of an exercise in pure fantasy to say that we know how my life would have been different had my sixth grade's grandfather not been enslaved. It's actually beyond the possibility of the human, of a mere human mind to say that with any confidence. And, and I think that's why we don't tend to give reparations to great-grandchildren. My argument was that it would make sense to give reparations to those who lived through the Jim Crow system, those born in Jim Crow states that are still alive, like my grandparents, for example. They are living victims of a system that we all look back on with shame, and it would make sense to give them reparations. It would not make sense to give reparations to all descendants of slaves. What's ta best argument? What points would you concede to him about the wisdom behind a policy like this, if any? Yeah, ta specifically, I'm sure there is something in his massive essay from 2014 that, that really broke this topic open. I'm sure there are, there are points in in that essay, I would concede to him. I don't see how any description of the black-white wealth gap in particular or the facts of slavery and Jim Crow, no matter how brutal and horrible, would lead me to say what's going to get the country to kind of end zone or to a sort of racial reckoning or a spiritual renewal, as he called it in that essay, is giving a check with slavery in the memo line to every black American, basically. You know, what I think is unfortunately true is that we have a treadmill effect on the issue of racism and the legacy of slavery. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you're on a treadmill and you don't know it, then you take a step forward thinking you're going forward and end up in the same place because the ground is moving below your feet. This is the dynamic that we have on slavery. 
right? And the legacy of slavery, which is you will have activists and journalists and opinion makers that will say, America, we don't acknowledge slavery. We don't like to look at our history. And that's why we need, for example, Juneteenth to be a federal holiday that today is actually officially Juneteenth. And so you'll have like, you know, last year, there's a USA Today article saying we ought to make Juneteenth a federal holiday, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of resistance because we don't like to acknowledge slavery. A couple months later, bipartisan Juneteenth passes as a federal holiday, right? Before most people even know what it is. Um, but in retrospect, it won't be considered a big deal. It will be the activists class that asks for these kinds of things and demands them will just put that gain in their pocket as if it meant nothing and then go back to saying that America doesn't acknowledge its history. So we're on a treadmill in that way. And I think reparations would be the same thing. I mean, so, so for example, another example that's anyone who's older than me, I guess, will remember is that in the lead up to Barack Obama's election, pretty much the thing everyone said, certainly black people, and I think probably many white people said and thought at the time was the country's just not ready. We're not, we're, we're still too racist to elect a black man named Barack Hussein Obama, who went to Jeremiah Wright's church. We're actually, we're, we're just too racist. We're too irrationally racist to elect such a man, let alone twice, let alone have him be popular. Or many people, black people thought he'll, he'll be assassinated within days. They'll, they'll just be a wave of, you know, so that's what people thought. Their prediction turned out to be totally wrong. Most popular Democratic president since Clinton, sort of the only truly very popular Democratic president in my in my lifetime, other than Clinton. I guess I was a baby at that time. A total rock star who won a lot of voters, in fact, that later went for Trump, won whole counties that later went for Trump. So it wasn't just winning, you know, it was truly popular among the swing voters. So, but what's the attitude towards that? If you say Barack Obama was a sign that we had come further than we thought, the attitude towards that statement is an eye roll. People will just say, oh, what are you talking about? Oh, you're just saying because we elected Barack Obama that we're past racism and you and you're racist. And it's like, wait a minute, weren't we all saying two seconds before he got elected that he never got elected? Because if he did, it would mean we came further as a country than we all thought. So again, that, that's a game that was just put in our pocket and forgotten about and the treadmill kept moving. And I have every reason to, to believe and expect that if reparations were paid, the day after I'd be reading columns in the New York Times by Ibram Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates saying, don't think that check meant anything. Don't think that reparations meant anything. We're still, we're still exactly where we were years ago. In fact, we're, we're worse somehow. Don't think you can pay me off with that blood money. That's what would be the new take. And it would be just as compelling and it would be just as guilt-inducing in white liberals. And it's totally bad faith. So let's say that the goal shouldn't be for all people who want the best of this country, who want the best for African-Americans. Let, let's say that the goal is that every young African-American sees their future as a bright one that they can control, that their economic destiny is in their own hands. How do we get there? What things would lead to a scalable shift in attitude that, that the economy is an open one and a fair one and one that anybody who wants to participate in can succeed to the extent of their desire to do so? Well, so I think the truth is what we're really talking about is we're talking about poor people. 
and we're talking about poor black people in particular, middle class, upper middle class black people, I think tend to have enough role models in their life to know that the avenues of opportunity are open to them. What the problem is a poor kid, a kid from the ghetto who may not know anyone that goes to a four-year college or, you know, will know more people that are in and out of prison than he will know uh, people that went to college, got married, and bought a house. And as all human beings do, we model ourselves most after the people in our immediate environment, our families and our peers. So to have that as your default, a, a life of what probably me and you would consider dysfunctional, to have that as your normal, that that is a huge challenge because then it requires enormous willpower and you know, it, it would be called, you know, lifting yourself by your own bootstraps. I mean, th this is what the, the left has always been correct to say that it's just in, it's so much harder to get to a normal life when you start in a situation of such chaos and, and poverty. It requires more willpower than it does for a kid where everything around you is stable and everyone expects you to go to college and everyone expects you to stay out of crime, right? Whereas if, if, if half the guys you know are in and out of the criminal underworld, that just is normal to you. And we, and we all gravitate towards what's normal. So what the, the difficult thing is for is to ask, how can communities and governments intervene in that world so as to take a kid like that and make it less likely that he ends up in prison, more likely that he feels he has opportunities in the world of legal gainful employment? Um, that's a very difficult question. It's, it's one that we really have to ask. And I would say, you know, it seems to me like roughly, if you look at a pie chart of all of the energy that people have against racism in this country, all of the emotional energy that people and psychic en energy that people have to fight racism. In that pie chart, it seems like maybe 5% of it is devoted to the issue that I just described. And, you know, like 50% of it is devoted to like demonizing people for like saying things on the internet that are considered <laughs> racist or, right. you know, a lot of it is like directed, obviously a lot of it is directed at like the cops. A surprisingly little of it is directed at the things that in the long run would slowly inch towards, you know, I don't really believe in solutions to these issues. There's no really solution like there is to a math problem, but there is progress to be made and very little of it is directed towards the kinds of things that would help in the long run. So based on my interpretation of your reading, if you could sway the, those conversations, if you could move the lines on that pie chart away from uh, demagoguery and popular programs that won't move the needle, you'd move things move toward things like better schools, prison reform, mm -hmm. better health care, mm -hmm. as opposed to affirmative action, mortgage, mortgage reform or, or, or racially based mortgage uh, programs and student loan forgiveness. Right. Is that, would that be an accurate interpretation? Oh, totally. I mean, so one thing you'll notice about almost all of the programs you just mentioned is most of them apply to people that are over the, the age of 18. Diversity and inclusion programs in the workplace, affirmative action for college and for jobs, different, you know, I, I think you're referring to like different mortgage rates for different races, you know, giving black people kind of a break. All of these 
are targeted at adults. And unfortunately, adults are, it's not to say you can't change an adult, but most of the way you could benefit a poor kid occurs in the first 15 years of his or her life. And and many of the anti-racist initiatives we are focused on skip the first 18 years entirely and try to take an 18-year-old who's already has ideas about who he or she is and what he or she wants and just kind of, you know, puts them on the conveyor belt in the airport so they're going a little faster or something. Like just like puts them into a college that they wouldn't have got into if they were white or Asian and says that you've helped them. I'm not really sure you have helped them. So to me, I would just reorient the entire focus to the first 10 and 15 years. Put all of our anti-racist energy towards improving the schools and environments that our kids are getting, right? And then when they're 18, let them compete on a playing field that doesn't give anyone an advantage because ultimately that's what the real world is like. But I think, you know, the whole affirmative action mindset is is basically to not pay too much attention to the years where you can do the most and then rig the system during the years that you can actually do the least for, for people in terms of really developing their skill sets. I wrote a few quotes down from some of your writing about some of the programs that come out of either the aggressive agenda or specific writings of somebody like Ibram X. Kendi from How to Be an Anti-Racist. And you wrote that the next, and I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but the next generation of black Americans will grow up far more likely than their non-black peers to hold values inimical to wealth building because the previous generation could not figure out how to speak honestly about black American culture. Ibram X. Kendi argues that capitalism is racist. It seems like if you're teaching kids that capitalism is racist and you won't talk about the things that actually lead to race building, you're teaching them to move away from trying to become successful. If you're, t- if you're teaching kids that assimilation into a white economy is oppression, that they're not going to want to participate in the economy. Are, are, do you fear for this next generation? And, and how could we help change the attitude and open their eyes that there's, there's a role for them in the economy? Well, luckily, I don't think kids growing up in the hood are reading Ibram Kendi <laughs> or, or Ta-Nehisi Coates for that matter. No, seriously, I think their message doesn't actually penetrate. Is Their message is read by elites, you know, of all colors who basically don't believe it <laughs> at any deep level and therefore are doing fine as a result. But those elites' attitudes make their way into policy. That's how you get Biden, you know, saying he's going to give COVID aid based on race because that's the Democratic Party's, you know, agenda. And uh, that comes mm-hmm. from white liberals to a large extent, right? And they are reading Kendi and they are reading Robin DiAngelo. So it seems like these supposedly well-intentioned policies are coming from the current academic narrative and they really are affecting the way that the government is directing money and policy to supposedly address these issues. Yeah, they are. And you're right. Even if the message is not directly heard, the policies do trickle down and and you get this attitude, which is often called the bigotry of low expectations, which is, you know, when you lower the bar for someone, what you're saying is that you actually expect less of them, right? When you say that we're going to get rid of test scores at this school because... We're going to get rid of standardized testing because the black kids are scoring lower. That attitude does not fall on my ear like a gift to black kids. That literally falls on my ear like you are giving up on black kids. You are essentially saying, we know they can't do it. That's what you were saying when you were getting getting rid of tests. 
what you should be saying is, okay, black kids are, are scoring much worse than Hispanic kids or scoring worse than white kids. How can we innovate in tutoring and really just sink our teeth into this issue in a hard-nosed way and get them scoring better? Instead, the attitude is to destroy all of the bars, all of the metrics by which we would actually measure the kind of progress we want. It's like, how would we even know if we're progressing nowadays, right? If you tell me more black kids are getting into elite colleges, because the colleges may just be rigging the applications. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that is basically the attitude on, on the left is rather than address the actual gap in skill sets, it's to address the bars that measure skills to basically change the finish line if one kid isn't faster. And I don't think that's a gift. I think that's very short-sighted. I think, you know, like, like every virtue carried too far is a vice. The virtue of empathy carried too far is you end up hurting the person by lowering the bar in life for them. Because, you know, often you don't know how high you can fly until you're sort of forced to live up to meet some bar. That's why we have, you know, the stereotype of like the tough coach that gets you to do more than you ever thought was possible precisely because he was tough. That's why you have the concept of tough love. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that's the right attitude to take towards this issue. And it's it's been failing. It's going to continue to fail. You say kids in the hood aren't reading Kendi or D'Angelo. You've just released a couple of a couple of new tracks, and one of them is called Straight A's, which features the lyrics, yeah, I got straight A's at my prep school. That's probably why I'm getting paid like the Mets do. Is part of your goal in extending this message out to try to get into people's heads, get into young people's heads, the idea that if you study, you can get paid, that there's a future out there for you? I don't, I mean, if, if it has that effect, that's nice. I don't think kids from the hood are listening to, to my music videos either. <laughs> Unfortunately, they should be. They would probably love it. But I mean, yeah, I, I, if you could cement that, I think someone once told me they wanted to coin the phrase a school to money pipeline because people talk often about the school to prison pipeline. And I mean, if it were more understood that, you know, keeping your head down, getting straight A's leads to getting bank, I think a, a lot, a lot more kids would do it. But like I said, this is the importance of role models can't be overstated because it's not enough to know that some person somewhere else went to college and is has a Lamborghini now. Most people have to know people from where they're from in their lives that they can reach out and touch and see them blaze a path before it seems realistic for them. That is how most of our minds work. Most people can't form a role, an abstract role model of, you know, like a famous person. We, we can look up to them, but really you want to see that someone from your block, from where you're from, did it. And then it feels like something that you could do. I do think for all the people out there who say young African-American people should just pick them up themselves up by their own bootstraps. I do think it's important to understand the role of mentorship. And that's something that Muhammad Masakwa, who's now a friend and a former uh, NFL football player told me on this program, he said, you know, where I grew up, there were no dads or moms who were doctors or lawyers. That just wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. And that did make me think. I mean, I wasn't surrounded by, you know, hedge fund gods in my neighborhood or, any, or investment bankers, but everybody had a job. Everybody was a teacher or a dentist or a insurance uh, broker or whatever. I also read a statistic recently that said the number of black millionaires has doubled in the last 25 years. Does that give you hope that these are examples, that these are mentors that younger people are going to see? 
you know, I'm not a doom and gloom person. I wrote a long essay several years ago called The Case for Black Optimism, in which I went over statistics in health outcomes, life expectancy, disease, death from disease, educational attainment, and uh, prison in- incarceration stats that are, have all been going in the right direction pretty f- fast in the past 20 years that you just never hear talked about. Um, so for, for example, the imprisonment rate, just the, the number of prisoners per population has more than cut in half for black men in their 20s in my lifetime. That's remarkable. It's gone down by more than 50%. And it's, it's actually gone down by something like 70% for black 18 and 19 year olds. Just in my lifetime, I'm, you know, 26 years old. So that's, you know, that's the kind of remarkable progress that we all want to see and never gets talked about because there is a vested interest in not acknowledging how much progress is happening in the current system, right? Like the writers, pretty much there, there's a bias with writers and journalists, which is that if you can say the sky is falling and make it seem plausible, people think you're super profound and, and really deep. That's kind of a perennial issue with writing and human psychology. So there's always a bias of writers to be pessimists, actually, because optimists sound like they're selling you something, as Steve, Steve Pinker said. Optimists sound like um, con men somehow. So when things are actually going in the right direction, people still want to read pessimists who sound profound over optimists that, are actually, that actually have stats and to back it up. And then secondly, the activist class, which has a lot of moral authority in our culture, has has an interest in never acknowledging the progress that's happening under the current system. If your whole thing is we've got to overturn the system, we've got to burn it to the ground, metaphorically or literally, goes totally against your interests to acknowledge the publicly available Bureau of Justice statistics that, you know, the prison rates are just plummeting without us having burned the system down. Because that would suggest that we actually don't need to burn the system down in order to make lots of progress, which would undermine your whole reason for, for that style of activism. So there are multiple reasons why people tend to not acknowledge progress. Coleman, this has been a very interesting conversation. I appreciate your time. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Listen to my podcast. It's called Conversations with Coleman. And you can also listen to my music on Spotify or YouTube. I just released a music video for a song I have called Forward, and uh, I got Neil deGrasse Tyson to be in the music video, make a cameo. So check that out. My rap name is Cold X Man, although the X is silent, just pronounced Cold Man. Coleman Hughes, thanks for your time. Thank you.